0: Hello, hello, you generosity freaks. (laughs) Thanks for listening to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I am your host for today, Brady Josephson, and I'm very excited to introduce you to Anne May Chang. She is the guest today, and she's also the author of a book called Lean Impact. She did research with 200 different organizations looking at uh, innovation and applying kind of the lean startup methodology uh, and elements of that movement to the social impact and nonprofit space. It's One of the things we talk about, she talks a little bit about her experience as the chief innovation officer at USAID, a massive government organization that is really the arm that does the government's development work. Uh, Some interesting stories there. And she kind of breaks down her book with the three principles. And then we talk about generosity. And uh, she gives some great tips as well on uh, whether you're a donor or you're a nonprofit looking To get donations from donors about questions and answers that you should ask or have. So it's a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. So hopefully you enjoy it. And thank you for listening.
1: (laughs) Welcome to the Freak
0: Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. I said, Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another freak Freak Show. Here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Hi, Anne May. Thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure. So before we get into kind of lean startup methodology and your book, Lean Impact, um, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about you and your story and how you ended up in this charitable space, the nonprofit space, the impact space at all.
1: Yeah, I'm um, sure I'd be happy to share. So, um, you know, I have always had a streak in myself wanting to do something to make the world around me a better place. It might be because I grew up as an immigrant in this country, had a kind of tough childhood, um, but I was always, you know, trying to find ways that I could make a difference. But it wasn't the main thing I was doing. I actually, studied as a software engineer um, mm. and you know worked in the tech industry for most of my career. Um, and and what I did for a long time was just you know volunteer my time, donate my money, and so forth but I always felt like, you know, I wasn't doing as much as I wanted to. And then um, someone that was really just an acquaintance of mine, who was an executive at Apple, um, announced that she was leaving her job at Apple and going to run a nonprofit. And uh, it was really inspiring for me. It never occurred to me that I could do something like that. And she was sort of mid-career, around her 40s or so. Um, And I was still, you know, in my early 20s, at the very beginning of my career. And I thought, hey, you know, I'd like to do something like that. That sounds really great, you know. Have a great career, you know, in Silicon Valley, do a bunch of good things, but then like really focus my time on doing some good. And so I vowed then and there, sort of in my early 20s, that that's what I would do. Hmm. Um, and you know, 20 years later, you know, in my early 40s, I decided to you know kind of make that shift. And I hadn't known for you know in the early days what I was going to do because I knew the world would change a lot by the time I got to that point. Right. And so as I got closer, I started thinking like, what do I really care about, and I started looking at all the things I cared about, um, I ended up deciding that I wanted to focus on global poverty, just because it seems like the root cause of so many of the problems hmm. in our world, certainly not the only problem in the world, but, but one that's pretty central. And so, you know, I went about trying to learn about this space and trying to figure out how I could make a difference.
0: Very cool. Very cool. And so um, I know one of the roles that you held was the chief innovation officer at USAID, which is no small organization. Uh, I'd love to know just kind of like maybe what, what were the steps that led you to that? And then like, what does a chief innovation officer do for such a large, complex organization?
1: Yeah. Well, so for listeners who aren't familiar with USAID, USAID is a government agency. So it's part of the U.S. federal government um, and its focused It's our foreign aid agency. Right. So uh, USAID looks at how we can work with countries around the world, generally lower income countries um, and help people thrive, you know, address humanitarian issues and so forth. And so, um, you know, it's, it's kind of funny the way I ended up with this job. It it was actually, I was working at a nonprofit at the time called Mercy Corps and, uh, you know, sort of still, you know, somewhat early in my transition, trying to figure out how I could really make a difference in this new world. And, um, I would, I, through a friend, I met uh, a friend of a friend who my my friend had been trying to connect me with for a while because she thought we'd have some things in common. And, you know, as we were talking, she talked about that she was helping the U.S. government start something called U.S. Digital Services. And, uh, you know, I had actually already worked in government at the State Department through this fellowship program. And so I was one of the first early people who had gone from Silicon Valley into government. And so um, she wanted to connect me with these people to see if I could be of help as they try to figure out how to do this at larger scale. So I said, I'd be happy to talk to them. And so um, I had a call with this woman and and, uh, you know, answered all of her questions or sort of shared my experience and so forth. And at the end, she's like, why don't you come back? Why don't you come join U.S. Digital Services? And I was like, well, it sounds great. But what I really want to do is work on global poverty. And then she's like, well, tell me more. What do you want to do? And I described my ideal job. Um, and she's like you know, I know just the thing for you. And it turned (laughs) out um, that this job at USAID, they'd just been looking for someone to fill it. And it was really my dream job. Um, I felt like it brought together the sort of two halves of my world that I hadn't quite figured out how to fit together. Um, uh, It was uh, as a chief innovation officer at USAID. And also the primary focus for me was that I was the executive director of something called the Global Development Lab. That was the newest bureau at USAID that was really looking at how we could use science, technology, innovation, and partnerships to dramatically accelerate our progress towards tackling global poverty. Um, And so it was really, you know, kind of taking what I had been doing and then applying it to what I wanted to be doing. So it was hard to imagine a better job. And the lab had this interesting two-part mission. So the first half of the mission was to Identify breakthrough innovations. So, you know, trying to find game changing innovations, whether they're technology based or not, um, that could really move the needle in terms of uh, the work that we're doing to end poverty. But the other, and, and that was the part of the mission I think that got the most attention because, you know, we would know, come up with really cool devices or really cool solutions or really cool technologies and, you know, something you can write cool press releases about. On the other hand, the second part of our mission was to transform the way that we do development, to really look at the way we do business. And in some ways I was more excited about that um, because it was unsexy part is all the stuff behind the, uh, you know, under the hood, you know, the skills that we had to develop, the tools that we needed, the processes that we had to put in place to allow the government to function differently and to allow our partners to function differently so that we could um, be able to, you know, to, to innovate more, to, to think out of the box more and to, to look at doing things differently.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, A, it's awesome that that kind of you found that perfect role and you were intentional early on about saying this is what I want to do and kind of, you know, there it is. I think <laughs> oftentimes people say, oh, you know, I just got lucky or knew someone, which you kind of did. But at the same time, like you were very intentional about this is what I want to do. So, uh-huh. you know, when that opportunity came, you saw it. So that part's neat. But I also think what's interesting is like innovation and then lean, which we'll get into like those are two words that don't often go with government. Yeah. <laughs> um, And the lean side often goes with nonprofit, but innovative, you know, maybe not. And so uh, I'd love to hear more about kind of, A, maybe can you explain kind of lean methodology in your book and then start kind of saying what that looks like within USAID or that, you know, big kind of government structure and kind of more the content of the book and how it applies to social impact and nonprofits
1: yeah sure so um, for people who aren't familiar with lean um, I think the term originally originated with lean manufacturing where it was really looking at how do we cut out the waste and be far more efficient at building what we're building um, and then a guy named Eric Reese wrote a best-selling book called lean startup that really kind of took that and applied it to a very different context which is running startup companies and and there you know he talked about lean as um, a methodology for building products and, and services under conditions of extreme uncertainty. like And this is true very much for startup companies because they're trying to invent things that no one has done before um, and are often working on the edges of what's possible, right? Um, and I, I would say it's equally true for nonprofits, that we are often trying to tackle the toughest challenges in the world that have been entrenched, that have been in place for a long time that we don't have good solutions for and that people have been trying to solve for a long time. So we have the same high degree of of uncertainty. And so I think lean approaches are equally important there. Um, And I have to step back a little bit and say, I think there's been actually quite a lot of hype these days. And I'd say that innovation, I think, is perhaps the most overused buzzword (laughs) in the English language. Everyone's talking about innovation, whether they are in government or nonprofits or otherwise. It may seem like um, the two don't go together, but people actually talk about it quite a lot. Um, But I think there's been a misunderstanding of what innovation really is. People, um, I I love this Edison quote that says, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And, that 1%, that sort of inspiration or the new idea is what I think of as the invention. And it's what I think often people think of when they talk about innovation these days is that new idea. People are always trying to come up with some fancy whiz bang gadget, right? Yeah. Um, But it's that 99% perspiration, the blood, sweat and tears that it takes to take that germ of a new idea and really test it, refine it, improve it, build the infrastructure and, you know, all of that stuff that leads it to have practical effect in the world. And that's what lean is really about. It is it's that perspiration is how do we take something that might be have, have great potential. And you know the, the core of lean startup is the build, measure, learn feedback loop, right? So how do we have a hypothesis build something to test that hypothesis, gather data to see if it worked or not, and then learn something from it and iterate it over and over again, right? And this is essentially based on the scientific method of hypothesis driven testing. Um, But the key is, you know, people think that the key is coming up with the best, most like spectacular idea. But the key to innovation in my mind is how fast can you drive that, that iteration loop? How fast can you build, measure and learn? And if you can do that on the order of days or weeks versus months or years, you are far more likely to find a solution that really works.
0: Yeah. So, so many things and possible jumping off points, but A, thank you for pausing and saying that. As, a, as someone who has innovation in his job title, like it is a buzzword and it does get overused, <laughs> but you basically kind of encapsulated a lot of what You know, we do, which we haven't talked a lot about, but it's basically applying that build, measure, learn feedback loop to fundraising in particular Uh through rigorous experimentation to decode why people give. And once we can kind of go through that rate of learning quicker, we can understand why people give and apply that to things like websites and pages, web pages and emails and things like that to grow generosity. Mm -hmm. And so I think too often, you know, um, nonprofits who are lean in terms of no resources are looking for silver bullet solutions and they don't want to know, hey, you got to grind at this for two years. And that's how you build a sustainable program. You know, they're just like, man, I just need solution X, text to give. Give me something that will just, you know, come in, solve my problems, and I can move on. And it just doesn't exist. It really doesn't exist. And so often you're right, people think of like Jetsons flying cars and in innovation and they don't think about incremental change over time and how truly innovative that can be or what insights and ideas that unlocks along the way that actually leads to the breakthrough, right? Doing this thing for the 80th time maybe isn't that innovative, but then you figure it out, Whoa! what just happened on this cycle or in this you know cycle through – what if we now apply this and now there's a breakthrough idea, right? Like it's, it's there's a method to innovation and that's really what lean startup is one of the things that it's about and it doesn't get applied properly. So thank you for <laughs> pausing and saying that. That's great.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and I think there is a misnomer that a lot of people think of lean as equating to cheap and, you know, nonprofits almost all live by a shoestring, And so they are lean in the sense of they don't have a lot of extra money. But, but you know, in, in lean impact and lean startup, we use lean in a different sense, which is not about being cheap But about being smart, how do we most effectively deploy the resources that we have so that we're not wasting them and we're not spending a lot of money deploying something that doesn't work or building something that's not going to work, but rather really focusing the resources that we do have on as, as efficiently as possible, figuring out the best solution and then putting all of our efforts behind that.
0: Yeah, that's that's another great point. I mean, that, that's why you write a book about this because you make <laughs> great points. But yeah, again, people think you know money or or uh, nonprofits are so lean and they rely on volunteers and things like that. But the irony, or one of the ironies, is the amount of waste that nonprofits do with crappy software tools that take them eight times longer to do a simple task, like that's not efficient, right? So we have this whacked out view of efficiency where we don't spend money and overhead ratios and that whole conversation where that's not efficient at all, right? And it's because we're measuring the wrong things and we're misusing resources. And so again, great point, lean isn't just uh, you know money or something like that. It's about being efficient with all resources, of which the main one is time. And the amount of time wasting that goes on of staff time in particular, is pretty insane once you get into a lot of nonprofits and it's riddled with waste.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the I think the challenges with innovating in, in the nonprofit sector is that the nonprofit sector, because finances are always so tight, the result is that, you know, a lot of organizations in what I are what I call in starvation mode, right? That they're there. And when you're in starvation mode, you're very short term focused. You're just looking at what's right in front of you and what you can do or what you can get that's right in front of you. And it's hard to look longer term. And innovation requires you to look longer term, because if you're just looking on a few month horizon, innovation is going to cost you more than it's going to get you. Um, But if you look on a few year horizon, the innovation will pay off in spades and you'll be able to do, you know, make a far greater impact at far greater scale by making that upfront investment. But it's incredibly hard to do when you're living from paycheck to paycheck as a nonprofit.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of ideas, the only difference between them being a failed idea and a great idea is time horizon. Yeah. You know, you take the same idea and you measure it over a two-year period as opposed to a three-month period, and it's great. In three months, you know, sometimes it's like flip a coin. Maybe it works or not. Like you just you cannot do enough in three months. Okay, so we're talking kind of diving into the methodology and, and movement Um I'm sure uh, your your book dives a lot more into kind of the key tenants and some of your research. But can you highlight a couple key principles of either like the lean movement for social impact or from your book or that specifically relate to like nonprofits or charities as opposed to kind of the Silicon Valley side of things?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So in the course of um, writing my book, I uh, I interviewed over 200 different organizations and really tried to learn from them sort of how they were finding ways to innovate, despite, I think, a lot of challenges that make it harder to innovate as a nonprofit than certainly a tech startup. Um, And, you know, as I continued to talk to folks and look at the barriers and look at how they had found paths through, I, I distilled down three principles that seemed to me to capture the key pivot points that kind of set organizations on the right direction. Um, And so the first one is to think big. Um, and, and this is really hard as we were just talking about, you know, when you're in starvation mode, it's hard to think big, right? That, that and, and nonprofits have a tendency to think in or and plan in a constraint-based mentality. It's like we have this much money or this much staffing, or there's this grant out there that we could win that is this time horizon and this much money. What could we do within these constraints? Like what's the most good we can do? Um, but if you look at sort of you know startup companies and and the most innovative organizations out there they don't think in terms of constraints they think in terms of needs it's like here there's this need in the world there are this many homeless people or this many people who are going hungry what you know what is the need out there and what what is needed to move the needle on that problem um, and you may not know from the beginning how you're going to get the resources to do it but if, but only by thinking big and coming up and and thinking about what is actually needed to get there and coming up with what might be possible to get there, can you actually start moving the needle? If if all we're doing is looking at sort of within these constraints, what can we deliver? We fall into this trap of for every dollar we raise, we can deliver $1 worth of benefit. And you continually do that and you feel like you're just like swimming in place, like you're swimming Mm -hmm. against the tide, right? Mm -hmm. So the second principle is to start small. Um, and this may may seem counterintuitive, right? Because I just said that I think the first principle is to think big. But the, the importance of starting small, I can't overemphasize enough. This is um, really the core of lean startup. The, the idea that what we, when, when we start small, we are in a much better position to be able to learn as fast as possible. You know, you can experiment and learn much more, more easily with five people than 5,000 people. Uh, and so what happens is a lot of nonprofits instead they think small and they start big right because they have to show that they're doing stuff so that their donors are happy and they can issue press releases and so um, the result is they are doing stuff but that stuff may not work or it may not work as well as it could or it may not be as cost effective as it could or it may not have a path to scale over time so that in you know in the longer term period they're not creating as much benefit as they could. Um, And so that's the second principle. And then the third principle is to relentlessly seek impact. Um, And, you know, one of the favorite quotes that a lot of people in the lean startup community use is this idea of loving your problem and not your solution. Um, And, again, in the nonprofit space, what I find is we get really emotionally attached to our solution because almost everything (laughs) we do does some good. Right. Right, And and we've seen somebody's life. It's improved in some way. Um, And it's also the thing we sell to funders is the thing we put on our website. It's the thing we're known for. So we get very attached to our solution. And and most organizations, everybody's trying to figure out how to promote the solution or refine the solution or deliver the solution. Um, But the reality is that, you know, if we're really focused on the problem, uh, sometimes that solution isn't the best way to solve the problem. It may require a different solution. It may require a different technology. It may require a different idea. It may require a different approach. It may require your organization to play a different role. Uh, And so I think it's really important to step back from the solution and really be focused on what's the problem we're trying to solve and be rigorous about looking at is our solution really the best way to address that problem.
0: Hey Everybody, Brady here. We'll get back to the episode in a second. Just wanted to make sure you knew about some free online training opportunities. If you go to courses.nextafter.com, you can see our free courses where you can learn about things like fundraising optimization, donation and landing pages, or Facebook advertising with more courses to come. Take them from your home or work or on vacation. Actually, don't take them on vacation. Just be on vacation. The point is you can take them wherever you want, whenever you want. They are based on all of our research studies and case studies, so things that are actually been proven to work. Anyways, if you're looking to go a little bit deeper on your online fundraising and digital marketing, feel free to check those out for free at courses.nextafter.com. Back to the show. Wow, those are great. Uh, great principles. The the last one in particular hit home for, for two reasons. Um, one, so before I kind of got into the consulting or agency side, my background was international development. Oh, great.
1: Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah,
0: that was kind of the route that I wanted to go. And so the first job I had was in Zambia doing development work. I was employee number one, uh, full-time employee number one. And so, so much of what I'd learned like in school did not apply because <laughs> okay. I was in this new environment. I was like, what is happening? Um, But we had kind of a traditional development model that was kind of child sponsorship and that kind of thing. And kind of after we got into it about a year in, like not really knowing what we were doing, so hindsight we should have known what we were doing before we started. But anyways, we we totally revamped our model and we actually moved towards like an impact investing type model and our focus was not on necessarily children but on sustainable development because we're like, man, there's schools everywhere. People know how to do schools. No one knows how to actually generate income within country to sustain operations. They're always right. reliant on donor funds. So right. we kind of pivoted, and then I left after two years. And you know that journey continues today to figure out how do you go from kind of child aid to like sustainable development. And that was not hard. I mean, not easy. We lost donors in the process, but the the problem was helping children still. And instead of just you know school and medicine needed. Don't get me wrong. We said, let's attack more of a root problem. And we had to totally overhaul our whole model. We had staff turn Like, it was messy for years.
1: That's brave. And that's a perfect example of, I think, what we don't do enough in the nonprofit sector.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and the, and the other thing that stood out when you were saying love the problem, not the solution, I was thinking more about the fundraising side. And then uh, I went to work for a microfinance organization, and uh, I loved microfinance. I fell in love with the solution. So the problem, of course, I identified with you know global poverty. But the we all kind of did when we worked for this microfinance organization. And when you look at kind of how we communicated, you could tell that we loved microfinance. Uh-huh. And so we talk about loan repayment rates and you know the long term impact and the impact of a woman and like all these cool solution things. But it was only with time that I was able to step back and look at how narcissistic a lot of our communications were. And the vast majority of donors don't know, like, what the problem is. Like, why are women so much valuable? Like, why is there a need for credit? Why can't they just go to a bank? And we just jumped to solution and just kind of left donors behind because we were communicating at this solution-oriented level without really digging into the problem. And a solution is only valid to donors if they know what the problem is, right? So you say, here's our awesome solution. They go, Cool. Move on with their lives, you know?
1: Yeah, and with microfinance, it's interesting, you know, it existed for a couple, you know, 20 years or 30 years or something like that, um, got to hundreds of millions of people around the world before people bothered to – test and and rigorously evaluate the impact that it was having and what they you know a bunch of studies ultimately found was that the impact was pretty marginal that it wasn't actually on average increasing people's income some some people's incomes were going up some were staying the same and some were going down because you know the they were getting caught in the debt trap because of the high interest rates right so you know it, it, it may sound good and it tells a great story and it got perpetuated to hundreds of millions of people but it didn't necessarily work
0: yeah. Well, and then, you know, in, in our case, in that organization started pivoting to things like sales, or sorry, um, savings, uh-huh. and then even looking at more like agriculturally focused products as opposed to kind of more like the micro market kind of thing, which we didn't have a lot of data that said this is awesome. Uh, then it, that's a tough story to tell donors, too, because we've been selling them on credit for exactly. years. <laughs> right. Credit, credit, <laughs> credit. And all of a sudden, we're like, oh, just kidding, you know, and, that, and that's tough. You know, it's a tough communication point because as organizations, we need to be able to say we got this wrong, too. Like, how can we get everything right, right out of the box? And so yeah. it does create an interesting challenge, even on the donor communication side is you got to instill trust and confidence. And we know, but you can't be so bold headed and, you know, just charge forward because, oh, no, we we just raised $8 million for this project. And I don't think it's going to work. Like, mm-hmm. well, we got to tell the donor it's not going to work, you know? Yeah. And so it, it creates an interesting side on on that on that side of the, the equation as well as communicating to donors when you learn about what's working or not. And how do you kind of make that change too um, okay interesting stuff so maybe um, if someone's listening and they're like okay i've never really heard of this like lean stuff this sounds cool um, like what are some maybe tips or advice of like you know beyond starting small and thinking big and least pursuing impact like what are some th- some ways that they can kind of get started or dip their toes in the lean waters
1: Yeah. So the simplest thing that people can do, and I'm stealing this, this quote from Steve Blank, who is some ways the sort of grandfather of lean, uh, lean startup is get out of the building. You know, we spend too much time in our buildings, you know, consulting with experts, trying to come up with the best grandmaster plan that we're going to sort of put out in the world and save the world. Um, and we don't spend enough time getting out of the building, like get out of the building, just go talk to the people that you're trying to help talk to the people around them, people, um, other stakeholders in the ecosystem and really listen and understand what their problems are and what their experiences are. Um, and, and start testing stuff with them, right? Don't just design something and spend a lot of time building out the infrastructure and and really trying to perfect it and have a whole lot of meetings. Like just do it, like figure out how to get out there. Um, so, so one example that I, just to give you a sense of what that looks like, is there's a company in Kenya called Copia, and they're trying to address this issue. It's actually Copia Global. They're trying to address this issue that people who are low income living in rural areas have very limited access to consumer goods. They just have very few choices of what goods make it out to them that they can purchase. And it's very expensive for them to get a lot of things that you might be able to you know, easily get here in the U.S. And so they wanted to give people a lot more choice, so you know, sort of be like the Amazon, if you will, for Kenya. And so there's a lot of unknowns about this, about whether it was going to work. Um, so Rather than, you know, building a website, building a, a, you know, a warehouse, hiring a bunch of people, building infrastructure, creating catalog, what they decided to do was just you know, get out of the building. Right. So they went to the supermarket in the city, took pictures of different products and then made a little paper catalog, brought it out to the village, gave it to a few different people to serve as their agents and said, hey, see if you can sell this stuff. Um, and, and, you know, and when somebody would want to buy something, the person would call them and and say, or text them and say, Hey, somebody wants this product. They would just literally go to the supermarket, buy the thing, carry it out there. Right. And what it let them do was figure out whether people would even order from a catalog, what products they were actually interested in, you know, way before they created all this infrastructure. And one of the surprising things they learned is that they thought initially that they would um, use this, uh, the people who ran these kiosks, these sort of small kind of corner shop kind of places um, as their agents. But, but they found out that they didn't turn out to be good agents because they were more interested in selling the inventory that they had already paid for in their shop. And so the people that turned out to be better agents were people who weren't actually trying to sell things like something, somebody like a hairdresser who was providing services, but they can make extra money on the side by like having this catalog there that people could buy stuff from. Right. Right. So, They would have set up a whole wrong infrastructure if they started out like kind of saying, this is our plan, we're going to deploy this thing. And so the idea is, you know, what can you learn uh, by talking to people, by doing something today or tomorrow or next week and not wait for months or years before something actually gets into the real world?
0: Yeah. Oh, that's that's great advice. Uh, so often I think because our sector is so passion-fueled, right? We just we just charge out there and here's what I love and I want to do and we just cut out the market validation side of things. Like is anyone asking for that? Yep. <laughs> can you even sell that? Do they even need that? Exactly. You know, and, and it's kind of the disconnect where you can raise money with passion and interest and have it be – not needed in the world at all mm-hmm. uh, you know there's not that kind of natural feedback loop in terms of raising money and having impact like a lot of other sectors do so getting out of the, the building I, I like that one a lot Well I'm sure we could take all day but you're you've got a lot of stuff going on so I don't want to keep going on and on I do want to just ask a little bit about generosity this is the generosity freak show after yeah. all uh, and that's more of kind of our space. So what role do you th- do you see kind of the the lean methodology movement playing in kind of the generosity space or growing giving or uh, how do you see generosity growing in the next you know 10, five, 15 years?
1: Yeah. And it's exciting that you, you have a podcast on generosity because I think it's such an important concept and a concept that I think is becoming more and more important to people um, in this generation. So um, it's, it's great to see that the, 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 the thing, the place where I think these two things come together, some of the things that we were just talking about, that generosity is about, you know, kind of giving to make the world a better place, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd like to, I would argue that giving is not enough and intentions are not enough, that it's really about like, are we making the world a better place? Mm-hmm. And so what I really want to do is bring together the act of generosity, which people think of as the giving, with the effectiveness of like taking responsibility for whether that giving is actually resulting in something better. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's ex- exactly what Lean Impact is trying to do, is, is looking at Um, how do we actually test and improve and hold ourselves accountable for the long-term sustainable benefits of what we're trying to create? And that's really what generosity is. If we really care about making the world a better place, we need to be sure that the money we're giving and the efforts that we're putting in are really resulting in that and not just sort of making ourselves feel better because we wrote a check.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. Uh, and I, I'm a big kind of um, proponent of the overhead is a myth, and it's a crap way to evaluate charities. And so then people go, well, well, then what do I do? And I think kind of this agile approach to giving is great. Just make a $25, 50 donation, see what happens. How do they report back to you? Like, what's the communication like? Do they treat you with respect? And if you like it, then grow your gift. And if you don't like it, then stop.
1: Yeah, Instead right, right.
0: of just kind of like giving 10K of, because you went to a gala, like that's not That's not super smart, you know? That's not wise giving.
1: And I would encourage people to ask some harder questions. So a lot right. of times the questions that we ask charities are, um, you know, how many people did you reach? Tell me a story about what happened. Right. right. Those things don't really tell us if that charity's any good, right? Like that you do enough stuff, you're going to have a good story. You're going to reach a bunch of people, but it doesn't say whether what you're doing is better than, you know, the alternative ways of spending that money. And so I really encourage people instead to ask charities like, is what you're doing working? You know, how do you know it's working?
0: How do you know? Yeah, exactly. Is, is it
1: better than if somebody else had taken this money and did it? How do you know what you're doing is better? What What are the things that are better about the way you're doing it for the, versus other people? We don't tend to ask those questions. We really just tend to look at the high level of. Right. You know, right. It's sort of like if you think of the equivalent of in the dot com boom. Right. You know, all we looked at is like all these company, you know, startup companies that were selling stuff but they weren't making a profit, right? They right. eventually they went bust. And so how many nonprofits are doing that? And, and how do we find out if that that's what's going on versus the nonprofits that are not actually have a real model behind what they're doing. They have a real impact behind they're doing. And, and right now we don't always know the difference.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Ask tougher questions. That's a, really good, that's a really good suggestion. Well, thank you so much for spending so much time with us and talking about all kinds of stuff. Uh, I really appreciate it. I, I enjoyed it. So even if no one else enjoyed it, which I'm sure they will, but this was great for me. So thank you. Um, where can people learn more about you, uh,
1: your book, and your work? Yeah, so we have a website up. It's just at www.leanimpact.org. That's uh, leanimpact.org. And lots of information about the book there. And the book is going to be coming out on October 30th. And I hope that you will all buy a copy and enjoy it.
0: (laughs) I hope that they do as well. So thank you again uh, for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right. Hopefully you enjoyed that conversation with Anne May. Uh, Again, I know that I did. And as she mentioned, her book, Lean Impact, is actually out right now. Uh, You can get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or kind of wherever you buy online books. You can also check it out at leanimpact.org. That's leanimpact.org. And the book itself is called Lean Impact. And a couple of the key things that stood out to me at least, I loved her three key principles of kind of um, thinking big, which is something that we do struggle with in the nonprofit space because we have so many constraints, and starting small. And now she talked about the difference between uh, reversing those. So often we'll kind of act big, but really we're thinking small and saying, no, we need to think big but start small and go through that rate of learning and figure out what's working or what's not working on a smaller scale before we roll it out. I think that applies to all kinds of things, whether it's programs and the actual work or even fundraising, right? Instead of launching this brand new initiative or text to give or whatever it might be, kind of taking that more pilot approach, start small, understand do donors actually respond to this in this way and then kind of roll it out. I think that that uh, can apply to all kinds of different things. And so, yeah, thinking big, starting small, and then relent- relentlessly seeking impact is always just a good reminder for us. Uh, and to make sure that that's really why we do this. Even the fundraising side, we do it to fund impact. And so to constantly be relentlessly pursuing impact is a good reminder. So anyways, uh, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Uh, Please do check out Anne May and her book, Lean Impact. And thank you for listening and see you next week. Hey, this is Brady, and I just want to say thank you for listening to The Generosity Freak Show. If you want to get all future episodes, please be sure to subscribe at generosityfreakshow.com, or you can just search The Generosity Freak Show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have comments, questions, feedback, you can email us at podcast at nextafter. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Generosity Freak Show is produced by Next After, where I work. NextAfter is an online fundraising research lab that works with nonprofits to help them grow their online fundraising. And our mission is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. You can learn more about us and what we're up to and see our latest research at nextafter.com. Lastly, this show would not be possible without my co-host, Tim Kuchuriak, and our amazing mixologist and producer, Nathan Hill. So many, many thanks to them. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.